The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams The podcast versions of the original Facebook Live readings during the coronavirus outbreak by Matthew Ogden, The Bearded Wit. Please bear in mind that as Facebook Live recordings, these are rough and ready, there are mistakes, there are a few trip-ups here and there, and there is laughter from the reader as he goes through and follows the humour himself along with you, the listener. We hope you enjoy listening to these and share liberally. Part 26 Good evening all. I'm looking very, very furry this evening. Uh, Lockdown is not being kind to my beard. (laughs) Good evening all. Hello, I can see Mark is here. Hello, Mark. Karen, good to see you. Bev, Bev Shaw, Nils. Hello, Nils. Hello, Morgana. Lovely to see you. Um, We'll crack on in just a second, but thank you all for joining, as always. It is a pleasure. I hope you are all feeling well, and the week has treated you kindly, and you've managed to survive without anything falling off, any parts of you. Um, And uh, if you're in Denmark... Congratulations on becoming the world champions for a second time at handball. Uh, I live in Denmark, so I've heard people all around the place shouting and screaming because the final was a little earlier this evening, and they played a very exciting game, and they did win. Uh, so so good for them. Um, Diva Denmark! So, yes, good for Denmark. And if you're listening in Sweden, my commiserations. Um, and I do... <laughs> got to say, I do love the passive aggressiveness of the fact that the Bo, the big bridge that joins Sweden and Denmark together between Copenhagen and Malmö, uh, they have now lit it up in, in the red and white colours of the Danabo, the Danish flag. Um, so if you live on the anywhere around that sort of Swedish coast, all you can see is this big bridge in red and white. So, I mean, it's yes, it's, it's nice of you to celebrate, Denmark. It's really nice. But it is sort of rubbing the Swedes' nose in it a little bit. Um, but hey... <laughs> Why not? Oh, Mark, hello, good to see you. Good to see you, good to see you, mate. Um, right, um, a couple of bits of points of order before we start. Um, I've got a couple of new patrons on Patreon uh, that I just promised to give a shout-out to. Arsene, uh, please, I'm going to pronounce, the, well, at least one of these wrong, uh, and for that I apologise profusely, uh, but Arsene Kacharov... Kakarov, Arsene Kacharov, uh, has become a patron. Thank you very much for being uh, a supporter. Uh, and Nick Lautrop, uh, who is a friend of mine over here, has uh, tipped his hat into the wing ring. So thank you very much, Nick. I really do appreciate the kind words also that you put with it. As 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 from you also, Arsene, who was saying uh, he's really enjoying what I'm doing here. So that may, means a huge amount to me. But that brings me on to the second point of order, which is if you're not already a patron, Please give it some thought. Uh, There are details here. Become a patron and support The Bearded Wit on patreon.com forward slash The Bearded Wit. If you would be so kind as to do that, um, I would be tremendously grateful. Uh, It does mean that I'm able to do more of this and more and more of this. Um, We're we're already uh, in book five. Probably going to do book six, the uh, Owen Coffer version uh, or conclusion. And other stuff. And I'm recording like fury on a whole ton of uh, what I hope is going to be fun and creepy, scary, spooky, ghosty, ghouly sort of stuff as well. 
and and any other requests. I've had a, a, a personal commission from someone here in Denmark who has said that they would like me to read a book specifically for them, uh, which I will endeavour to do very soon. Uh, so so keep that stuff coming in. I am available for work, um, but I would be grateful if you could do that. Uh, okay, hold on a second. So Mark Schmidt has just mentioned that the Orson Pro is a joint venture. So the Swedes are self-deprecating as we are being... <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. He's had some wine, clearly. You know, shut up, Mark. <laughs> Cheeky bugger. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So a quick recap. Uh, yes, so if you could, just to wrap up that previous thing, please do go and support me on patreon.com forward slash thebeardedwit. Um, and I would be tremendously grateful if you do do that. Uh, it will help me continue to do this kind of stuff uh, and, and much, this and much more besides. Um, yes. So the recap, the recap, where did we get to? Well, basically, um, we are into book five, um, mostly harmless. Um, and we have reached a point whereby we are realizing that there's there's more than just uh, Fenchurch, who we met in the previous book as a, an anomaly in this this uh, sort of alternative universe, or uh, on this completely new and rather bizarre Earth, and that in fact there is a Trisha McMillan knocking about, and we've just worked out from the close of the previous one that this is not Trillian. This is Trisha McMillan, who is also Trillian, but she's a different version. She's as 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 um, what was it? Uh, I think it was Terry Pratchett talked about how time bifurcated like a pair of trousers. So as you reached a point and and you had like a pair of trousers, you go down one trouser leg or the other trouser leg, and possibly, actually, you could go down both trouser legs, and at the end of it, you could meet up. And you could end up meeting. It's very complicated. I'm sure I've got, I've got a friend, Jason, um, one of my next door neighbours from many years ago, uh, who's a jolly good chap, who is in fact literally a rocket scientist. He's the head of physics at uh, Liverpool University, I believe. Uh, and I'll ask him <laughs> and he can say, Matt, it's rubbish. Or he'll say it's true. Anyway, I'm burbling. So we've met Trisha McMillan um, and she has discovered uh, that there is a time and a place to take your bag with you, go back for your bag, or forget it entirely. Uh, and uh, that's where we basically got to. We've also uh, been introduced to the Grebulons, and the Grebulons are somewhere in the universe. They've hit pay dirt in terms of, of their uh, objective, which was to um, observe things. But because a meteorite smashed out, or a comet or something smashed out, basically the entire brain of the ship they were on, on which all of their information was stored about themselves, their memories, everything, they have no idea what the hell they're supposed to be doing. Maybe we'll find out more about that. I don't know. Anyway. Oh, hello, Alexander. There's Alexander here as well. Right. Let us crack on. Let us crack on. The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy has in what we laughingly call the past, had a great deal to say on the subject of parallel universes. Very little of this, however, is at all comprehensible to anyone below the level of advanced god. And since it is now well established that all known gods came into existence a good three millionths of a second after the universe began, rather than, as they usually claimed, the previous week, 
they already have a great deal of explaining to do as it is, and are therefore not available for comment on matters of deep physics at this time. One encouraging thing the guy does have to say on the subject of parallel universes is that you don't get to stand the remotest chance of understanding it. You can therefore say, what? and, huh? and even go cross-eyed and start to blither, if you like, without any fear of making a fool of yourself. The first thing to realise about parallel universes, the guide says, is that they are not parallel. It's almost also try that again. It is also important to realise that they are not, strictly speaking, universes either. But it's easiest if you try and realise that sorry, but it's easiest if you try and realise that a little later, after you've realised that everything you've realised up to that moment is not true. The reason they are not universes is that any given universe is not actually a thing as such, but is just a way of looking at what is technically known as the wuzogmum, or the whole sort of general mishmash. The whole sort of general mishmash doesn't actually exist either, but is just the sum total of all the different ways there would be of looking at it if it did. The reason they are not parallel is the same reason that the sea is not parallel. It doesn't mean anything. You can slice the whole sort of general mishmash any which way you'd like, and you will generally come up with something that someone will call home. Please feel too blither now. The Earth, with which we are here concerned, because of its particular orientation in the whole sort of general mishmash, was hit by a neutrino that other Earths were not. A neutrino is not a big thing to be hit by. In fact, it's hard to think of anything much smaller by which one could reasonably be hoped to hit. Be bleh. Teeth. In fact, it's hard to think of anything much smaller by which one could reasonably hope to be hit. And it's not as if being hit by neutrinos was, in itself, a particularly unusual event for something the size of the Earth. Far from it. It would be an unusual nanosecond in which the Earth was not hit by several billion passing neutrinos. It all depends on what you mean by hit, of course seeing as matter consists almost entirely of nothing at all. The chances of a neutrino actually hitting something as it travels through all this howling emptiness are roughly comparable to that of dropping a ball bearing at random from a cruising 747 and hitting, say, an egg sandwich. Anyway, this neutrino hit something. Not terribly important in the grand scale of things you might say. But the problem with saying something like that is that you would be talking cross-eyed badger spit. Once something actually happens somewhere in something as wildly complicated as the universe, Kevin knows where it will end up. Where Kevin is, any random entity that doesn't know nothing about nothing. This neutrino struck an atom. The atom was part of a molecule. The molecule was part of a nucleic acid. 
the nucleic acid was part of a gene. The gene was part of a genetic recipe for growing. And so on. The upshot was that a plant ended up growing an extra leaf. In Essex, or what would, after a lot of palaver and local difficulties of a geological nature, become Essex. The plant was a clover. It threw its weight, or rather its seed, around extremely effectively, and rapidly became the world's dominant type of clover. The precise causal connection between this tiny biological happenstance and a few other minor variations that exist in that slice of the whole sort of general mishmash, such as Trisha Macmillan failing to leave with Zaford Beeblebrox, abnormally low sales of pecan-flavoured ice cream and the fact that the earth on which all this occurred did not get demolished by the Vogons to make way for a new hyperspace bypass, is currently sitting at number... 4,763,984,132 on the research project priority list at was once what, what was once the history department of the University of Maxi Megalon. And no one, currently at the prayer meeting by the poolside, appears to feel any sense of urgency about the problem. Trisha began to feel that the world was conspiring against her. She knew that this was a perfectly normal way to feel after an overnight flight going east, when you suddenly have a whole other mysteriously threatening day to deal with for which you are not the least bit prepared. But still, there were marks on her lawn. She didn't really care about marks on her lawn very much. Marks on her lawn could go and take a running jump, as far as she was concerned. It was a Saturday morning. She had just got home from New York, feeling tired, crabby and paranoid. And all she wanted to do was go to bed with the radio on quietly and gradually fall asleep to the sound of Ned Sherin being terribly clever about something. But Eric Bartlett was not going to let her get away with not making a thorough inspection of the marks. Eric was the old gardener who came in from the village on Saturday mornings to poke around at her garden with a stick. He didn't believe in people coming in from New York first thing in the morning. He didn't hold with it. It went against nature. He believed in virtually everything else, though. "'Probably them space aliens,' he said bending over and prodding at the edges of the small indentations with his stick. "'Hear a lot about space aliens these days. I, I, I expect it's them.' "'Do you?' said Trisha, looking furtively at her watch. Ten minutes, she reckoned. Ten minutes she'd be able to stay standing up. Then she would simply keel over, whether she was in her bedroom or still out here in the garden.' That was if she just had to stand. If she had also to nod intelligently and say, do you, from time to time, it might cut it down to five. 
"'Oh, yes,' said Eric. "'They come down here, land on your lawn, and then buzz off again, sometimes with your cat. Mrs McWilliams at the post office, her cat, you know, the ginger one, it got abducted by space aliens.' Of course, they bought it back the next day, but it were in a very odd mood, kept prowling around all morning, and then falling asleep in the afternoon. Used to be the other way round, is the point. Sleep in the morning, prowling in the afternoon. Jet lag, you see, from being in an interplanetary craft. I see, said Tricia. They dyed it tabby, too, she says. The marks are exactly the sort of marks that their landing pods would probably make. You don't think it's the lawnmower? asked Tricia. If the marks were more round, I'd say, but these are just sort of off-round, you see, altogether more alien in shape. It's just that you mentioned the lawnmower was playing up and needed fixing, or it might start gouging holes in the lawn. I did say that, Miss Tricia, and I stand by what I said. I'm not saying it's not the lawnmower for definite. I'm just saying what seems to be, well, to me, more likely given the shapes of the owls. They come in over these trees, you see, in their landing pods. Eric, said Tricia patiently. Tell you what, though, Miss Tricia, said Eric, I will, I will take a look at the lawnmower. I meant to do so last week, and to leave you to get on with... "'Whatever you're wanting to do.' "'Thank you, Eric,' said Tricia. "'I'm going to bed now, in fact. "'Help yourself to anything you want in the kitchen.' "'Oh, thank you, Miss Tricia, and good luck to you,' said Eric. "'He bent over and picked up something from the lawn. "'There,' he said, "'a three-leaf clover. "'Good luck that, you see.' He peered at it closely to check that it was a real three-leaf clover and not just a regular four-leaf one that one of the leaves had fallen off. If I were you, though, I'd watch for signs of alien activity in the area. He scanned the horizon keenly. Particularly from over there, in the Henley direction. Thank you, Eric, said Trisha again. I will. She went to bed and dreamt fitfully of parrots and other birds. In the afternoon she got up and prowled around restlessly, not certain what to do with the rest of the day, or, indeed, the rest of her life. She spent at least an hour dithering, trying to make up her mind whether to head into town and go to Stavros for the evening. This was the currently fashionable spot for high-flying media types, and seeing a few friends there might help her ease herself back into the swing of things. She decided at last she would go. It was good. It was fun there. She was very fond of Stavro himself, who was a Greek with a German father, a fairly odd combination. Trisha had been to the Alpha a couple of nights earlier, which was Stavro's original club in New York, now run by his brother Carl, who thought of himself as a German with a Greek mother. Stavro would be very happy to be told that Carl was making a bit of a pig's ear of running the New York club, so Trisha would go and make him happy. There was little love lost between Stavro and Carl Müller. Okay, that's what she would do. She then spent another hour dithering about what to wear. 
At last, she settled on a smart little black dress she'd got in New York. She phoned a friend to see who was likely to be at the club that evening, and was told that it was closed for the evening for a private wedding party. She thought that trying to live life according to any plan you actually work out is like trying to buy ingredients from, for a recipe from the supermarket. You get one of those trolleys which simply will not go in the direction you push it and end up just having to buy completely different stuff. What do you do with it? What do you do with the recipe? She didn't know. Anyway, that night an alien spacecraft landed on her lawn. She watched it coming in from the Henley direction, with mild curiosity at first, wondering what those lights were. Living as she did not a million miles from Heathrow, she was used to seeing lights in the sky. Not usually so late in the evening, or so low, though, which was why she was mildly curious. When whatever it was began to come closer and closer, her curiosity began to turn to bemusement. Hmm, she thought, which was about as far as she could go with that kind of thinking. She was still feeling dopey and jet-lagged, and the messages that one part of her brain was busy sending to another were not necessarily arriving on time, or even the right way up. She left the kitchen where she'd been fixing herself a coffee, and went to open the back door which led out into the garden. She took a deep breath of cool evening air, stepped outside, and looked up. There was something roughly the size of a large camper van, parked about a hundred feet above her lawn. It was really there, hanging there, almost silent. Something moved deep inside her. Her arms dropped slowly down to her side. She didn't notice the scalding coffee slopping over her foot. She was hardly breathing as slowly, inch by inch, foot by foot, the craft came downwards. Its lights were playing softly over the ground, as if probing and feeling it. They played over her. It seemed beyond all hope that she should be given her chance again. Had he found her? Had he come back? The craft dropped down and down, until at last it settled quietly on her lawn. It didn't look exactly like the one she'd seen departing all those years ago, she thought, but flashing lights in the night sky are hard to resolve into solid shapes. Silence. Then a click and a hum. Then another click and another hum. Click hum. Click hum. A doorway slid open, spilling light towards her across the lawn. She waited, tingling. A figure stood silhouetted in the light, then another, and another. 
wide eyes blinked slowly at her. Hands were slowly raised in greeting. Macmillan, a voice said at last, a strange, thin voice that managed the syllables with difficulty. Trisha Macmillan? Ms. Trisha Macmillan? Yes, said Trisha, almost soundlessly. Ah, we have been monitoring you. Monitoring me? Yes. They looked at her for a while, their large eyes moving up and down her very slowly. You look smaller in real life, one said at last. What? said Trisha. Yes. I I don't understand, said Trisha. She hadn't expected any of this, of course, but even for something she hadn't expected to begin with, it wasn't going the way she expected. At last she said, Are you... are you from Zaphod? This question seemed to cause a little consternation among the three figures. They conferred with each other on in some skittering language of their own, and then turned back to her. Uh, we don't uh, think so. Uh, not as far as we know, said one. Where is Zephard? said another, looking up into the night sky. Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't know, said Trisha helplessly. Is, is it far from here? Which direction? We don't know. Trisha realised with a sinking heart that they had no idea who she was talking about, or even what she was talking about. And she had no idea what they were talking about. She put her hopes tightly away again and snapped her brain back into gear. There was no point in being disappointed. She had to wake up to the fact that she had here the journalistic scoop of the century. What should she do? Go back into the house for a video camera? Wouldn't they just be gone when she got back? She was thoroughly confused as to strategy. Keep them talking, she thought. Figure it out later. You've been monitoring me? All of you. Everything on your planet. TV, radio, telecommunications, computers, video circuitry. Warehouses. What? Car parks. Everything. We, we monitor everything. Trisha stared at them. That, that must be very boring, isn't it? She blurted out. Yes. So why? Except. Yes, ex except what? Game shows. We, we quite like game shows. There was a terribly long silence as Trisha looked at the aliens and the aliens looked at her. There's something I would just like to get from indoors, said Trisha very deliberately. Tell you what, would you or one of you like to come inside with me and have a look? Oh, very much, they all said together enthusiastically.
quick slurp of tea. All three of them stood slightly awkwardly in her sitting room as she hurried around picking up a video camera, a 35mm camera, a tape recorder, every recording medium, basically, she could grab hold of. They were all thin, and under domestic lighting conditions, a sort of dim purplish green. "'I really won't be a second, guys,' Tricia said as she rummaged through some of the drawers for spare tapes and films. The aliens were looking at the shelves that held her CDs and her old records. One of them nudged one of the others very slightly. Ooh, look, he said. Elvis. Trisha stopped and stared at them all over again. You, you, you like Elvis, she said. Yes, they said. Elvis Presley? Yes. She shook her head in bewilderment as she tried to stuff a new tape into her video camera. "'Some of your people,' said one of her visitors hesitantly, "'think that Elvis has been kidnapped by space aliens.' "'What?' said Trish. "'Has he?' "'It is possible.' "'Are you, are you telling me that you have kidnapped Elvis?' gasped Trisha. She was trying to keep cool enough not to foul up her equipment, but this was almost too much for her. No, no, not us, said her guests. Aliens. It is a very interesting possibility. We talk of it often. I must get this down, Trisha muttered to, muttered to herself. She checked her video was she checked her video was properly loaded and working now. She pointed the camera at them. She didn't put it up to her eye because she didn't want to freak them out, but she was sufficiently experienced to be able to shoot accurately from the hip. <coughs> Pardon me. OK, she said. Now, tell me slowly and carefully who you are. You first, she said to the one on the left. What's your name? I don't know. You don't know? No. I see, said Tricia. What about you other two? We don't know. Good. OK. Perhaps you can tell me where you are from. They shook their heads. You, you don't know where you're from? They shook their heads again. So, said Tricia, wh what are you... "'What are you?' she was floundering, but being a professional kept the camera steady while she did so. "'We are on a mission,' said one of the aliens. "'A mission? A, mi a mission to do what?' "'We uh, do not know.' She kept the camera steady. "'So what are you doing here on Earth, then?' "'We have come to fetch you.' Rock steady, rock steady. She could have been a tripod. She wondered if she should, in fact, be using a tripod. She wondered that because it gave her a moment or two to digest what they had just said. No, she thought, handheld gave her more flexibility. She also thought, help, what am I going to do? Why, she asked calmly, have you come to fetch me? Because we have lost our minds. "'Excuse me,' said Trisha. I "'I'm going to have to get a tripod.' 
They seemed happy enough to stand there doing nothing while Trisha quickly found a tripod and mounted the camera on it. Her face was completely immobile, but she did not have the faintest idea what was going on or what to think about it. Okay, she said when she was ready. Why? We liked your interview with the astrologer. You you saw it? We see everything. We are very interested in astrology. We like it. It is very interesting. Not everything is interesting. Astrology is interesting. What the stars tell us, what the stars foretell, we, we, we could do with some information like that. But Trisha didn't even know where to start. Own up, she thought. There is no point trying to second-guess any of this stuff. So she said, But I don't know anything about astrology. We do. You, you do? Yes, we follow our horoscopes. We are very avid. We see all your newspapers and your magazines are very avid with them. But our leader says we have a problem. You, you have a leader? Yes. What's his name? We do not know. OK, what does he say his name is, for Christ's sake? Sorry, I need to edit that. But what, what does he say his name is? He does not know. So how do you know he's the leader? He sees control. He said someone has to do something around here. Ah, said Tricia, seizing on a clue. Where is here? Rupert. What? Your people call it Rupert. The second, tenth planet from your sun. We have settled there for many years. It is highly cold and uninteresting there, but good for monitoring. Why, why are you monitoring us? It is all we, we know to do. Oh, said Trisha. Right. What is the problem that your leader says you have? Triangulation. I, I beg your pardon? Astrology is a very precise science. We know this. Well, said Trisha, and then left it at that. Uh, but it is precise for you here on Earth. Yes. She had a horrible feeling she was getting a vague glimmering of something. So, when uh, Venus is rising in Capricorn, for instance, that is from Earth, how does that work if we are out on Rupert? What if the Earth is rising in Capricorn? It is hard for us to know. Amongst the other things we have forgotten, which we think are many and profound, is trigonometry. Let me get this straight, said Trisha. You want with me you want me to come with you to Rupert? Yes. To recalculate your horoscopes for you, to take account of the relative positions of Earth and Rupert. Yes. Do I get an exclusive? Yes. I'm your girl, said Tricia, thinking that at the very least she could sell it to the National Enquirer. As she boarded the craft that would take her off to the furthest limits of the solar system, the first thing that met her eyes was a bank of video monitors across which thousands of images were sweeping. A fourth alien was sitting, watching them, but was focused on one particular screen that held a steady image. It was a replay of the impromptu interview which Trisha had just conducted with his three colleagues. He looked up when he saw her apprehensively climbing in. Good evening, Miss Macmillan, 
he said. Nice camera work. Ford Prefect hit the ground running. The ground was about three inches further from the ventilation shaft than he remembered it, so he misjudged the point at which he would hit the ground and started running too soon. He stumbled awkwardly and twisted his ankle. Damn! He ran off down the corridor anyway, hobbling slightly. All over the building, alarms were erupting into their usual frenzy of excitement. He dived for cover behind the usual storage cabinets, glanced around to check that he was unseen, and started rapidly to fish around inside his satchel for the usual things he needed. His ankle, unusually, was hurting like hell. The ground was not only three inches further from the ventilation shaft than he remembered, it was also on a different planet than he remembered, but it was the three inches that had caught him by surprise. The offices of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy were quite often shifted at very short notice to another planet for reasons of local climate, local hostility, power bills or tax, but they were always reconstructed exactly the same way, almost to the very molecule. For many of the company's employees, the layout of their offices represented the only constant they knew in a severely distorted personal universe. Something, though, was odd. This was not in itself surprising, thought Ford, as he pulled out his lightweight throwing towel. Virtually everything in his life was, to a greater or lesser extent, odd. It was just that this was odd in a slightly different way than he was used to things being odd, which was, well, strange. He couldn't quite get it into focus immediately. He got out his number three gauge prizing tool. The alarms were going in the same old way that he knew well. There was a kind of music to them that he could almost hum along to. That was all very familiar. The world outside had been a new one on Ford. He had not been to Sacquopiliahentia before, and he had liked it. It had a kind of carnival atmosphere to it. He took from his satchel a toy bow and arrow which he'd bought in a street market. He had discovered that the reason for the carnival atmosphere on Sacquopiliahentia is that the local people were celebrating the annual Feast of Assumption of St. Antwelm. St. Antwelm had been, during his lifetime, a great and popular king who had made a great and popular assumption. What King Antwelm had assumed was that what, was that what everyone wanted, all other things being equal, was to be happy and enjoy themselves and have the best possible time together. On his death, he had willed his entire personal fortune to financing an annual festival to remind everyone of this, with lots of good food and dancing and very silly games, like Hunt the Wocket. His assumption had been such a brilliantly good one that he was made into a saint for it. Not only that, but all the people who had been previously made saints for doing things like being stoned to death in a thoroughly miserable way, or living upside down in barrels of dung, were instantly demoted and were now thought to be, frankly, rather embarrassing. The familiar H-shaped building 
of the Hitchhiker's Guide offices rose above the outskirts of the city, and Ford Prefect had broken into it in the familiar way. He always entered via the ventilation system rather than the main lobby, because the main lobby was patrolled by robots whose job it was to quiz incoming employees about their expense accounts. Ford Prefect's expense accounts were ill-equipped to understand... Sorry, Ford Prefect's expense accounts were notoriously complex and difficult affairs, and he had found on the whole that the lobby robots were ill-equipped to understand the arguments he had wished to put forward in relation to them. He preferred, therefore, to make his entrance via another route. This meant setting off nearly every alarm in the building, but not the one in the accounts department, which was the way that Ford preferred it. He hunkered down behind the storage cabinet. He licked the rubber suction cup of the toy arrow and then fitted it to the string of the bow. Within about 30 seconds, a security robot the size of a small melon came flying down the corridor at about waist height, scanning left and right for anything unusual as it did so. With impeccable timing, Ford shot the toy arrow across its path. The arrow flew across the corridor and stuck, wobbling on the other opposite wall. As it flew, the robot's sensors locked onto it instantly, and the robot twisted through 90 degrees to follow it to see what the hell it was and where it was going. This brought Ford one precious second, during which the robot was looking in the opposite direction from him. He hurled the towel over the flying robot and caught it. Because of the various sensory protuberances with which the robot was festooned, it couldn't manoeuvre inside the towel, and it just twitched back and forth without being able to turn and face its captor. Ford hauled it quickly towards him and pinned it down to the ground. It was beginning to whine pitifully. With one swift and practised movement, Ford reached under the towel with his number three gauge, gauge bleh, with his number three gauge prizing tool and flipped off the small plastic panel on top of the robot, which gave access to its logic circuits. Now, logic is a wonderful thing, but it has, as the processes of evolution discovered, certain drawbacks. Anything that thinks logically can be fooled by something else which thinks at least as logically as it does. The easiest way to fool a completely logical robot is to feed it the same stimulus sequence over and over again so it gets locked in a loop. This was best demonstrated by the famous herring sandwich experiments conducted millennia ago at Misboso, the Maximegalon Institute of slowly and painfully working out the surprisingly obvious. A robot was programmed to believe that it liked herring sandwiches. This was actually the most difficult part of the whole experiment. Once the robot had been programmed to believe that it liked herring sandwiches, a herring sandwich was placed in front of it. Whereupon the robot thought to itself, Ah, a herring sandwich! I like herring sandwiches! It would then bend over and scoop up the herring sandwich in its herring sandwich scoop, and then straighten up again. Unfortunately for the robot, it was fashioned in such a way that the action of straightening up caused the herring sandwich to slip straight back off its herring sandwich scoop and fall onto the floor in front of the robot. Whereupon the robot thought to itself, Ah, a herring sandwich! etc., and repeated the same action over 
and over and over again. The only thing that prevented the herring sandwich from getting bored with the whole damn business and crawling off in search of other ways of passing the time was that the herring sandwich, being just a bit of dead fish between a couple of slices of bread, was marginally less alert to what was going on than the robot. The scientists at the Institute thus discovered that the driving force behind all change, development and innovation in life was this. Herring sandwiches. They published a paper to this effect, which was widely criticised as being stultifyingly stupid. They checked their figures and realised that what they had actually discovered was boredom, or rather the practical function of boredom. In a fever of excitement, they then went on to discover other emotions, such as irritability, depression, reluctance, ickiness and so on. The next big breakthrough came when they stopped using herring sandwiches, whereupon a whole welter of new emotions became suddenly available for them to study, such as relief, joy, friskiness, appetite, satisfaction, and, most important of all, the desire for happiness. This was the biggest breakthrough of all. Ooh, hold on. That was bizarre. Sorry, folks. There's a robot trying to call me. <laughs> this was the biggest breakthrough of all. Vast wadges of complex computer code governing robot behaviour in all possible contingencies could be replaced very simply. All that robots needed was the capacity to be either bored or happy. And a few conditions that needed to be satisfied in order and a few conditions that needed to be satisfied in order to bring those states about. They would then work with the rest of it for themselves. The robot which Ford had got trapped under his towel was not, at the moment, a happy robot. It was happy when it could move about. It was happy when it could see other things. It was particularly happy when it could see other things moving about. Particularly if the other things were moving about doing things that they shouldn't do because it could then, with considerable delight, report them. Ford would soon fix that. He squatted over the robot and held it between his knees. The towel was still covering all of its sensory mechanisms, but Ford had now got its logic circuits exposed. The robot was whirring grungily and pettishly, but it could only fidget, it couldn't actually move. Using the prizing tool, Ford eased a small chip out from its socket. As soon as it came out, the robot went quiet and just sat there in a coma. The chip Ford had taken out was the one which contained the instructions for all the conditions that had to be fulfilled in order for the robot to feel happy. The robot would be happy when a tiny electrical charge from a point just to the left of the chip reached another point just to the right of the chip. The chip determined whether the charge got there or not. Ford pulled out a small length of wire that had been threaded into the towel. He dug one end of it into the top left hole of the chip socket and the other into the bottom, right, uh, bottom right hole. That was all it took. Now the robot would be happy whatever happened. 
Ford quickly stood up and whisked the towel away. The robot rose ecstatically into the air, pursuing a kind of wriggly path. It turned and saw Ford. Mr Prefect, sir, I am so happy to see you. Good to see you, little fella, said Ford. <coughs> I think I've coughed up one of my <coughs> tonsils. <laughs> the robot rapidly reported back to its central control that everything was now for the best in this best of all possible worlds. The alarms rapidly quelled themselves and life returned to normal. Uh, at least almost to normal. There was something odd about the place. The little robot was gurgling with electric delight. Ford hurried on down the corridor, letting the thing bob along in his wake, telling him how delicious everything was and how happy it was to be able to tell him that. Ford, however, was not happy. He passed faces of people he didn't know. They didn't look his sort of people. They were too well-groomed, their eyes too dead. Every time he thought he saw someone he recognised in the distance and hurried along to say hello, it would turn out to be someone else, with an altogether neater hairstyle and a much more thrusting, purposeful look about them. Well, basically than anyone that Ford knew. A staircase had been moved a few inches to the left. A ceiling had been lowered slightly. A lobby had been remodelled. All of these things were not worrying in themselves, though they were a little disorienting. The thing that was worrying was the decor. It used to be brash and glitzy expensive, because the guide sold so well through the civilised and post-civilised galaxy, but expensive and fun. Wild games machines lined the corridors, insanely painted grand pianos hung from ceilings, vicious sea creatures from the planet Viv reared up out of pools in a tree-filled atria. Robot butlers in stupid shirts roamed the corridors seeking whose hands they might press frothing drinks into. People used to have bet pet vast dragons on leads and... and oh, Jesus Christ, hold on. <laughs> we'll try that one again. Pet vast dragons on leads and pterospondies on perches in their offices. People knew how to have a good time, and if they didn't, there were courses they could sign up for which which would put that right. There was none of that now. Somebody had been through the place doing some iniquitous kind of taste job on it. Ford turned sharply into a small alcove, cupped his hand and yanked the flying robot in with him. He squatted down and peered at the happily burbling cybernaut. "'What's been happening here?' he demanded. Oh, just the nicest thing, sir. Just the nicest possible thing. Can I sit on your lap, please? No, said Ford, brushing the thing away. It was overjoyed to be spurned in this way and started to bob and burble and swoon. Ford grabbed it again and stuck it firmly in the air a foot in front of his face. 
It tried to stay where it was, but couldn't help quivering slightly. Something's changed, hasn't it? Ford hissed. Oh, yes, squealed the little robot, in the most fabulous and wonderful way. I feel so good about it. Well, what was it like before then? <laughs> Scrumptious! But you like the way it's changed, demanded Ford. Oh, I like everything, moaned the robot, especially when you shout at me like that. Oh, do it again, please. Just tell me what's happened. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, Ford sighed. OK, OK, oh, OK, panted the robot. The guide has been taken over. There's a new management. It's all so gorgeous. I could melt. The old management was also fabulous, of course, though I'm not sure I thought so at the time. That was before you had a bit of wire stuck in your head. Oh, true! How wonderfully true! How wonderfully, blubblingly, frothingly, burstingly true! What a true, ecstatically inducing, correct observation! What's happened? insisted Ford. Who is this new management? When did they take over? I... Oh, God, never mind, he added, as the little robot started to gibber with uncontrollable joy and rub itself against his knee. I'll go and find out for myself. Ford hurled himself at the door of the editor-in-chief's office, tucked himself into a tight ball as the frame splintered and gave way, rolled rapidly across the floor to where the drinks trolley laden with some of the galaxy's most potent and expensive beverages habitually stood, seized hold of the trolley, and using it to give himself cover, trundled it and himself across the main exposed part of the office floor to where the valuable and extremely rude statue of Leda and the octopus stood and took shelter behind it. Meanwhile, the little security robot entering at chest height was suicidally delighted to draw gunfire away from Ford. That at least was the plan, and a necessary one. The current editor-in-chief, Stagyazil Doggo, was a dangerously unbalanced man who took a homicidal view of contributing staff turning up in his office without pages of fresh, proofed copy, and had a battery of laser-guided guns linked to special scanning devices in the doorframe to deter anyone who was merely bringing extremely good reasons why they hadn't written any. Thus was a high level of output maintained. Unfortunately, the drinks trolley wasn't there. Ford hurled himself desperately sideways and somersaulted towards the statue of Leda and the octopus, uh, which also wasn't there. He rolled and hurtled round the room in a kind of random panic, tripped, spun, hit the window, which fortunately was built to withstand rocket attacks, rebounded and fell in a bruised and winded heap behind a smart, grey crushed leather sofa, which hadn't been there before. After a few seconds, he slowly peeked up above the top of the sofa. As well as there being no drinks trolley, and no leader and the octopus, there also had been a startling absence of gunfire. He frowned. This was all utterly wrong. 
Mr. Prefect, I assume, said a voice. The voice came from a smooth-faced individual behind a large ceramotique bonded desk. Stagyar Zil Doggo may well have been one hell of an individual, but no one, for a whole variety of reasons, would have ever called him smooth-faced. This was not Stagyar Zil Doggo. I assume, from the manner of your entrance, that you do not have new material for the, um, guide at the moment, said the smooth-faced individual. He was sitting with his elbows resting on the table and holding his fingertips together in a manner which, inexplicably, has never been made a capital offence. I've, um, <clears throat> I've been busy, said Ford, rather weakly. He staggered to his feet, brushing himself down. Then he thought, what the hell was he saying things weakly for? He had to get on top of this situation. He had to find out who the hell this person was, and he suddenly thought of a way of doing it. Who the hell are you? he demanded. I am your new editor-in-chief. That is, if we decide to retain your services... My name is Van Hal. He didn't put his hand out. He just added, What have you done to that security robot? The little robot was rolling very, very slowly around the ceiling and moaning quietly to itself. I've made it very happy snapped Ford. It's a kind of mission I have. Where's Stagyar? More to the point, where's his drinks trolley? Mr. Zildogo is no longer with this organisation. His drinks trolley is, I imagine, helping to console him for this fact. Organisation? yelled Ford. Or Organize What bloody stupid word for a setup like this is that? Precisely our sentiments. Understructured, over-resourced, under-managed and over-inebriated. <coughs> and that, said Hull, was just the editor. I'll do the jokes, snarled Ford. No, said Hull, you will do the restaurant column. He tossed a piece of plastic onto the desk in front of him. Ford did not move to pick it up. Y you what? said Ford. No. Me, Hal, you, Prefect. You do restaurant column. Me, Editor. Me, sit here, tell you, you do restaurant column. You get restaurant column, said Ford, too bewildered to be really angry yet. Sit down, Prefect, said Hall. He swung round in his swivel chair, got to his feet and stood staring out at the tiny specks enjoying the carnival, twenty-three storeys below. Time to get this business on its feet, Prefect. We, 
at Infinidim Enterprises are... You at what? Infinidim Enterprises. We have bought out the guide. Infinidim? We spent millions on that name, Prefect. Start liking it or start packing. Ford shrugged. He had nothing to pack. The galaxy is changing, said Hal. We've got to change with it. Go with the market. The market is moving up. New aspirations, new technology. The future is... Don't tell me anything about the future, said Ford. I've been all over the future. Spent half my time there. It's the same as anywhere else, any when else, whatever. It's just the same old stuff in faster cars and smellier air. That's one future, said Hall. That's your future, if you accept it. You've got to learn to think multidimensionally. There are limitless futures stretching out in every direction from this moment and from this moment and from this. Billions of them bifurcating every instant. Every possible position of every possible electron balloons out into billions of probabilities. Billions and billions of shining, gleaming futures. You know what that means? You're dribbling down your chin. Billions and billions of markets. I see, said Ford. So, <clears throat> you sell billions and billions of guides? No, said Hal, reaching for his handkerchief and not finding one. <clears throat> Excuse me, he said. This does get me very excited. Ford handed him his towel. The reason we don't sell billions and billions of guides, continued Hal after wiping his mouth, is the expense. What we do is sell one guide billions and billions of times. We exploit the multidimensional nature of the universe to cut down on manufacturing costs, and we don't sell to penniless hitchhikers. What a stupid notion that was. Find the one section of the market that more or less, by definition, doesn't have any money, and try to sell to it. No, we sell to the affluent business traveller and his vacationing wife in a billion, billion different futures. This is the most radical, dynamic and thrusting business venture in the entire multidimensional infinity of space-time probability ever. And you want me to be its restaurant critic, said Ford. We would value your input. Kill! shouted Ford. He shouted it at his towel. The towel leapt up out of Hull's hands. This was not because it had any motive force of its own, but because Hull was so startled at the idea that it might... 
The next thing that startled him was the sight of Ford Prefect hurtling across the desk at him, fists first. In fact, Ford was just lunging for the credit card, but you don't get to occupy the sort of position that Hal occupied in the sort of organisation in which Hal occupied it without developing a healthy, paranoid view of life. He took the sensible precaution of hurling himself backwards and striking his head a sharp but blow on the rocket-proof glass, then subsided into a series of worrying and highly personal dreams. Ford lay on the desk, surprised at how swimmingly everything had gone. He glanced quickly at the piece of plastic he now held in his hand. It was a dino-charge credit card with his name already embossed on it, and an expiry date two years from now, and was probably the single most exciting thing Ford had ever seen in his life. Then he clambered over the desk to see to Harl. He was breathing fairly easily. It occurred to Ford that he might breathe more easily yet, without the weight of his wallet bearing down on his chest. So he slipped it out of Harl's best breast, prof bleh, breast pocket and flipped through it. Fair amount of cash, credit tokens, ultra golf club membership, other club memberships, photos of someone's wife and family, presumably Harl's, but it was hard to be sure these days. Busy executives often didn't have time for a full-time wife and family and would just rent them for weekends. Ha! He couldn't believe what he'd just found. He slowly drew out from the wallet a single and insanely exciting piece of plastic that was nestling amongst a bunch of receipts. It wasn't insanely exciting to look at, it was rather dull in fact. It was smaller and a little thicker than a credit card and semi-transparent. If you held it up to the light, you could see a lot of holographically encoded information and images buried pseudo-inches deep beneath its surface. It was an identity-ease. And it was a very naughty and silly thing for Harl to have lying around in his wallet though it was perfectly understandable. There were so many different ways in which you were required to provide absolute proof of your identity these days that life could easily become extremely tiresome just from that factor alone, never mind the deeper existential problems of trying to function as a coherent consciousness in an epistemological... epistemologically ambitious physical... Oh, for Christ's sake. I've lost it. <clears throat> I tried to function as a coherent consciousness in an esp epi epistemologically good gracious epistemologically ambiguous physical universe just look at cash point machines for instance queues of people standing around waiting to have their fingerprints read their retinas scanned bits of skin scraped from the nape of the neck and undergoing instant or nearly instant a good six or sevens in good six or seven seconds in tedious react. God gracious. Just look at cash point machines, for instance. Queues of people standing around waiting to have their fingerprints read, their retinas scanned, bits of skin scraped from the nape of the neck and undergoing instant, or nearly instant, a good six or seven seconds in tedious reality, genetic analysis, and then having to answer a trick question about members of their family they didn't even remember they had, and about their recorded preferences for tablecloth colours. And that was just to get a bit of spare cash for the weekend. If you were trying to raise a loan for a jet car, 
sign a missile treaty, or pay an entire restaurant bills, Bill, things could get seriously trying. Hence the identities. This encoded every single piece of information about you, your body and your life, into all one-purpose machine-readable card that you could then carry around in your wallet, and therefore represented technology's greatest triumph to date over both itself and plain common sense. Ford pocketed it. A remarkably good idea had just occurred to him. He wondered how long Harl would remain unconscious. "'Hey!' he said to the little melon-sized robot still slobbing with euphoria up on the ceiling. "'You want to stay happy?' The robot gurgled that it did. "'Then stick with me and do everything I tell you without fail.' The robot said that it was quite happy where it was up on the ceiling, thank you very much. It had never realised before how much sheer titillation there was to be got from a good ceiling, and it wanted to explore its feelings about ceilings in greater depth.' "'You stay there,' said Ford, "'and you'll soon be recaptured "'and have your conditional chip replaced. "'You want to stay happy? "'Come along now.' "'The robot let out a long, "'heartfelt sigh of impassioned tristesse "'and sank reluctantly away from the ceiling. "'Listen,' said Ford, "'can you keep the rest of the security system "'happy for a few minutes?' "'One of the joys of true happiness,' trilled the robot, "'is sharing. I brim, I froth, I overflow. "'Okay,' said Ford. "'Just spread a little happiness around the security network. "'Don't give it any information. "'Just make it feel good so it doesn't feel the need to ask for any.' "'He picked up his towel and ran cheerfully for the door.' Life had been a little dull of late. It showed every sign now of becoming extremely fruity. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is where we'll leave it for this evening. Ten past ten, good point. Seems like we've got to reach a good point to, to wrap things up for the evening. Thank you very much for your company. As always, as I mentioned at the top of the show, if you would be so kind as to consider becoming a patron and supporting The Bearded Wit on patreon.com forward slash The Bearded Wit, I would be very, very grateful. Um, in the meantime, however, thank you very much for your company. As always, I will see you in a week's time on the same place, same time, 2100 CET. Uh, and I hope you all have a very good week. Look after yourselves. Look after the people around you. And, you know, basically, are just completely hoopy and totally fruity. Because, you know, why not? Take care, everyone. See you next week.